Good evening. More pleas for Americans to get out of Ukraine under the threat of a possible Russian invasion. We talked to a U.S. military veteran. Thousands of New York City employees face termination for refusing to get vaccinated, while truckers and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau head for a head-on collision. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for February 11th, 2022. As the depth of winter sets in in Ukraine and Russia, time is approaching for a Russian invasion. At least that's what United States authorities and diplomats are saying. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken also noted today that Russia could invade Ukraine even during the Winter Olympics, Olympics, which end on February 20th. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan today said Americans in Ukraine should leave as soon as possible. We are in the window when an invasion could begin at any time, should Vladimir Putin decide to order it. I will not comment on the details of our intelligence information, but I do want to be clear. It could begin during the Olympics, uh, despite a lot of speculation uh, that it would only happen after the Olympics. Any American in Ukraine should leave as soon as possible, and in any event, in the next 24 to 48 hours. If you stay, you are assuming risk with no guarantee that there will be any other opportunity to leave and there no prospect of a U.S. military evacuation in the event of a Russian invasion. Russia has all the forces it needs to conduct a major military action. I'm not sure exactly what you mean by, quote, full-scale invasion, but Russia could choose in very short order to commence a major military action against Ukraine. The way that he has built up his forces and put them in place Uh, along with the other indicators that that we have collected through intelligence, uh, makes it clear to us that there is a very distinct possibility that Russia will choose to act militarily, and there is reason to believe that that could happen on a reasonably swift time frame. Now, we can't pinpoint the day at this point, and we can't pinpoint the hour, but what we can say is that there is a credible prospect that a Russian military action would take place even before the end of the Olympics. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, the United Kingdom Foreign Office also urged its citizens to leave while commercial means are available. And Japan, Latvia, Norway and the Netherlands have also called on their citizens to get out. While Britain, Germany, France and the United States and other countries continue diplomatic efforts to help avert a possible invasion. Russia says... It has no plans to invade, but Western intelligence says more than 100,000 Russian troops have ringed the Eastern European nation. Danny Shurgeon is a retired U.S. Army officer, contributing editor at Antiwar.com and senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. He says it's up to NATO countries to withdraw support for U.S. policy as the threat of war grows. We haven't seen the threat of a major conventional war in Europe that involves tanks and artillery at this potential level since Stalin and Hitler locked horns. It really is a big deal. As for the prediction of whether this actually goes down, those are tricky things. My sense is probably not, but the risk is high enough that it needs to be taken quite seriously. You know, I've been saying for about two weeks now that if Russia, if Putin is going to kick this thing off, he's going to do it after he meets with Xi Jinping in China, right, which he already did at the Olympics, essentially get the blessing in private and the guarantee that if we do the sanctions that no one has ever seen before that Biden is talking about, that there'll be Chinese support for basically holding the Russian economy together. And when you combine that with the fact that uh, it is about now, 
it is about mid-February when the permafrost in the eastern steppe area of Ukraine is basically hardest, which is most uh, amenable to armored warfare, which is the Russian model. If there's going to be an invasion, it'll probably be sometime between now and uh, March 1st. The way the American media covers most of these issues, there is no yesterday. The history started today or yesterday at best. But the reality is that this this whole thing started back in 1994, 1995, when the decision was made to go ahead and expand NATO all the way to the very borders of the old Soviet Union, in fact, into some of the Soviet republics in the case of the Baltic states. More recently, ever since April 2021, Russia started first massing about 100,000 soldiers on the borders of Ukraine for what they called exercises. It's been one crisis after another, and Putin's calling the shots. And whether he invades or not, he's already won because he's done two major things. The first one is he's caused a panic in both the American political and Pentagon space because he called our bluff and we currently realize that we don't really have an answer. And the second thing that he do is he may well have fractured NATO because we have at least four or five NATO states that are saying, no joke, I'm not playing this. Places like Bulgaria, for example, that are just like, I'm out. And, and you know, Italy wants nothing to do with it. Some of these states have actually gone so far as to say, we will not be involved with the war with Ukraine. So over Ukraine. So I think what he's done is he's caused panic in the American military space, realizing we don't have a, a plausible uh, effective tactical response. And secondly, he's really uh, exposed the mirage that NATO has always been, uh, which is essentially, you know, a 28 to 30 country conglomeration of people who can barely agree on anything uh, or even speak the same language. The German response so far has been far more rational. They mean, they won't ship arms to Ukraine and uh, they sent some helmets, right? I mean, that's as far as they're willing to go. And the former, just barely former chief of the German Navy said, look, this whole thing's a farce. Putin deserves a certain degree of respect in his sphere of influence. This is like a replay of 2002-2003 when there were two particular powerful European NATO countries, Germany and France, who were sort of wavering and saying we shouldn't invade Iraq. This gets really, really awkward if we talk military brass and tax, which is the fact that in terms of armored forces and credible, capable ground armies – Germany and France are basically the only game in town in NATO besides Turkey, and Turkey doesn't want much to do with this. That is a very, very awkward place for the United States to be in. Frankly, I like it because I think the whole thing has been a fantasy from the start, this idea that NATO should push to the Russian borders and could fight a land war over countries that we have little to no strategic interest in and that most Americans don't know that we're supposed to defend. I don't want to thank Vladimir Putin because I'm not a particular fan, but I think he's called out some realities. It's how you spend your money, not how much you spend. So Russia has been investing in the things that we haven't. I mean, they've been investing in things like anti-aircraft, tanks, artillery. We've been throwing all kinds of money at the military industrial complex, enriching defense contractors with literal blood money, mostly for legacy systems that may not sound so legacy, but for systems that aren't going to be able to save us in a war like this. You know, we're talking aircraft carriers, talking F-35s that barely fly. Our military budget is not geared towards this kind of war. And there's this old phrase that says, you show me your military budget and I'll tell you your military strategy. Well, America's budget is not supporting a strategy to defeat Russia in Eastern Europe. 
Danny Surgeon is retired U.S. Army officer, contributing editor at antiwar.com, senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. Meanwhile, President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin will speak by phone tomorrow. Biden said yesterday he would not deploy U.S. troops to Ukraine to evacuate Americans if Russia does invade. On Monday, Biden threatened to penalize Russia by blocking operation of the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline, which is poised to begin piping fuel directly to Germany from Russia rather than transiting through Ukraine. Biden said during a joint press conference with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz earlier this week, if Russia invades, that means tanks or troops crossing the border of Ukraine again. Then there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2, referring to an underwater gas pipeline recently completed between Russia and Germany. And on this side of the pond, the Canadian city of Windsor and the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association secured a court injunction Friday afternoon to put an end to the ongoing blockade at the busiest international crossing in North America. The ruling comes as weeks-long nationwide COVID-19 protests have disrupted the supply chain and triggered a state of emergency in the country's most popular province. Officials, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, have said the stalemate at the Ambassador Bridge, which connects the city of Windsor to Detroit, Michigan, is hurting families, workers, and economies on both sides of the border. Earlier today, Trudeau called for an unlawful, for what he called the unlawful activity to end. I had a direct call with President Biden to talk about our shared challenges at the border. I updated him on the situation, particularly in Windsor. We discussed the American and indeed global influences on the protest. We talked about the U.S.-based flooding of the 911 phone lines in Ottawa, the presence of U.S. citizens in the blockades, and the impact of foreign money to fund this illegal activity. President Biden and I both agree that for the security of people and the economy, these blockades cannot continue. So make no mistake, the border cannot and will not remain closed. I want to remind everyone that politicians don't direct police in a democratic society, but I can assure you that the RCMP is working with provincial and local police departments to enforce the law. Everything is on the table because this unlawful activity has to end and it will end. Of course, I can't say too much more now as to exactly when or how this ends because unfortunately we are concerned about violence. So we're taking every precaution to keep people safe. But the absolute safest way for this to end is for everyone to return to your communities now. And that's Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada. Meanwhile, here in this country, the Homeland Department of Homeland Security is warning law enforcement across the country that a convoy of truckers protesting COVID-19 vaccine mandates similar to the protests in Ottawa, Canada, could begin in the United States very soon with the pension with the potential to affect Sunday's Super Bowl in the Los Angeles area and cause other disruptions. A DHS bulletin issued Tuesday to state and local officials says the agency has received reports of truck drivers planning to potentially block roads in major metropolitan cities in the United States in protests of, among other things, vaccine mandates for truck drivers. The convoy will potentially begin in California as early as mid-February and arrive in Washington, D.C. as late as mid-March, potentially impacting the Super Bowl 
uh, 55 scheduled for February 13th and the State of the Union address scheduled for March 1st. Hundreds of municipal workers who marched over the Brooklyn Bridge this week pleading for Mayor Eric Adams to reject New York City's vaccine mandate did not convince the mayor to back down on a mandate first announced by his predecessor, former mayor Bill de Blasio. The Adams administration is poised to dismiss up to 3,000 municipal workers today for refusing to get vaccinated against the coronavirus and what could be the nation's most drastic example of a workforce reduction tied to vaccine requirements. The president of the Uniform Firefighters Association of Greater New York, Andrew Ansborough, advised workers to get the vaccine or, res- or resign before they're fired. Uh, approximately a dozen New York City firefighters among countless other New York City employees that are facing termination for refusing to get vaccinated on the New York City vaccine mandate program. These firefighters spent a career in service to the city, protecting the lives and property of New York City residents at the risk of their own lives, health and safety. Most, if not all of them, became infected with COVID directly from their work for the city. And it's appalling to myself and many others that natural immunity that was gained by the infection from working for New York City was then ignored by New York City as an acceptable alternative to vaccination. In New York City, there's more care and effort put into planning and the studies conducted on the placement of a bike lane on New York City street than on the effects and necessity of a vaccine mandate for its employees. To those of my members facing termination, I have to say I am proud of you for holding the line but I still encourage you to get the vaccination before it's too late. In the end, I'm hoping that the decision you make in the long run is the right decision for you and your family. And if you choose not to get vaccinated, please get your affairs in order with the department and resign on your own terms before New York City fires you. Well, we don't want to see any of our members get fired. You know, in the end, this is a decision they will have to make for themselves. You know, everyone has to make an isolated decision and we can only encourage them you know, not to lose their jobs. I, I feel some people will regret it in the end, which is another reason why I wish they would keep the door open. You know, there is no reason to, to permanently and definitively re- fire someone today where we do have policies in place where mem- members can take a one-year leave of absence. I have asked the commissioner to allow members that they're facing termination to take a one-year leave of absence, and he has denied that request. And that is Andrew Ansborough. He's the head of the Uniform Firefighters Association of Greater New York. The mandate has been effective. About 95% of the city's 370,000 workers have received at least one dose of the vaccine, an increase from 84% when the mandate was first announced in October. The loss of roughly 3,000 workers would represent less than 1% of the city's workforce, but is still believed to be the largest worker reduction in the nation in response to a vaccine mandate. Another roughly 1,000 new city employees must show proof of two doses by today, or they could also be fired. Dr. Ted Long, executive director of the city's Test and Trace Corp, said, we can't let our guard down yet. The fight isn't over, but we're here to help. He went on to say the goal was to ensure that there can be no wrong door to getting tested, to know your status, so you can know what to do. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. A major bipartisan law to empower victims of sexual harassment and assault cleared the Senate yesterday and heads to President Biden's death for signature. It's the most significant Me Too legislation to pass in Congress since the movement began. Gretchen Carlson came forward against former Fox News CEO Roger Ailes in 2016. Since then, she's advocated for the law and today joined or yesterday joined senators on both sides of the aisle to celebrate its passing. Of American workers who have been silenced for doing nothing wrong. 
workers who simply wanted to go to their jobs every day and work in a safe environment. Workers who had the courage to come forward to say something was wrong and in return got shunted into a secret chamber most of them never heard from ever again. I could never have imagined five years ago, after filing my harassment lawsuit against Fox News Chairman and CEO Roger Ailes, that I'd be standing here today with such an amazing bipartisan victory. A dear friend of mine said to me back then, you know, Gretchen, something good is going to come out of this. Hmm. I didn't really see it that way at the time, but it turns out she was right. A lot of good has come from my decision to come forward and speak for the millions of others who couldn't. A lot of good has come forward from walking the halls of Congress for the last five years, working with both parties. A lot of good will come from this bill, which is change. The bill will allow survivors a choice, secret arbitration or the public courts. The stakes couldn't be higher. Marching in the streets can inspire us. Editorials can open our minds. Hashtags can galvanize. But legislation is the only thing that lasts. And that is Gretchen Carlson, a uh, former Fox News commentator. The Senate passed the bill by unanimous consent days after it overwhelmingly passed the House. The law will effectively make it illegal for employers to shield cases like sexual harassment from the public eye. President Joe Biden is expected to sign the bill into law. The Ending Force Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act allows employees to choose to take their sexual misconduct complaints to court as opposed to the common practice of companies through employment contracts forcing private, often confidential proceedings to resolve the claims. And a bipartisan group of United States senators on Wednesday earlier this week agreed on a deal to renew a long-lapsed law to strengthen domestic violence protections just hours after Hollywood actor and humanitarian Angelina Jolie made a tearful speech of support. Jolie's voice broke as she acknowledged the women and children for whom this legislation comes too late in a speech in Washington. Passing this law is one of the most important votes U.S. senators will cast this year. As survivors of abuse know all too well, victims of our failed systems are not allowed to be angry. You're supposed to be calm and patient and ask nicely. But you try staying calm when it's as if someone is holding your head underwater and you're drowning. Try to stay calm when you're witnessing someone you love being harmed. Try to stay calm if after you were strangled and you find the courage to come forward, you discover that your chances of proving the abuse are now gone because no one took into account the different ways bruising presents on black and brown skin and they failed to check properly for signs of injury. And that's Angelina Jolie of the Violence Against Women Act expired at the end of 2018. And United States President Joe Biden, who originally sponsored the bill as a senator in 1994, had campaigned on renewing it. The House of Representatives approved this renewal in a 244 to 172 vote almost a year ago. But legislation stalled in Congress amid partisan disputes over access to guns and transgender issues. 
And closer to home, Mayor Eric Adams spoke out against drill music at a press conference today, calling on social media platforms to remove material related to what he called the alarming music and saying he wanted to hold a meeting with Brooklyn rappers. I had no idea what drill rapping was, but I called my son and he sent me some videos and it is alarming. And we are going to pull together the social media companies and sit down with them and state that you have a civic and corporate responsibility. You know, I mean, we pulled Trump off Twitter because of what he was spewing. Yet we are allowing uh, uh, music, displaying of guns, violence. We're allowing it to stay uh, on these sites uh, because look at the victims. We're bringing them in. We're going to show exactly what is being uh, displayed. And we are alarmed by it. Uh, We are alarmed by the use of social media to really over-proliferate this violence in our communities. And I had no idea what drill rapping. And that is the mayor speaking earlier today. Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez tweeted about drill music earlier this week, writing, Drill rap videos are fueling violence among rival gangs across our city. He claims a number of shootings in Brooklyn recently are directly related to drill. These drill rap videos, he says, are causing young people to lose their lives. It's not that the music is the cause of the violence, but it's fueling the desire to retaliate. And protesters in Chinatown this week are demanding no new jail in their neighborhood. It's something then-candidate Eric Adams supported a year ago. No new jail, no building up a jail in this location. We can do a better job, and I know it's possible to solve the problems we are facing in incarceration without the destructions of community. So I'm here with you side by side, and we will continue to fight side by side. Well, I joined them today and said, On Sunday, a group of more than 100 neighbors, activists, and community leaders chanted in almost 30-degree weather outside the Manhattan Detention Complex, known locally as the Tombs, at the corner of Center and White Streets of Manhattan. With only two weeks to go before the Department of Corrections begins to dismantle, as in demolish, the existing building to make way for a new 40-story tall mega jail. The plan, initially put forth by the de Blasio administration and fervently supported by former council member Margaret Chin, calls for replacing Rikers Island with a borough-based jail network across the city. From day one in 2018, the scheme has been met with steep criticism from Lower Manhattan's Chinatown community. And finally, a lawsuit seeking to annul and vacate the Soho NoHo Chinatown rezoning charges that the scheme would cause mass displacement of thousands of current neighborhood residents, as well as violate both the United States and New York State Constitution. On Thursday, the nonprofit Coalition for Fairness in Soho and NoHo, along with 10 individual resident plaintiffs, filed suit in New York State Supreme Court against the Department of City Planning, the City Planning Commission, the City Council, and Mayor Eric Adams over the rezoning, which became law in December. The suit was brought by attorney Jack Lester. 
The complaint says the rezoning imposes unconstitutionally retroactive fines and confiscatory fees on longtime residents, including a new mandatory $100 per square foot tax, the so-called flip tax for required conversions of artist zone lofts to residential use. According to an architect's affidavit in the lawsuit, average conversion costs, including the flip tax plus compulsory construction upgrades to the area's old repurposed manufacturing buildings would be a staggering $1 million per unit. And that's some of the news for Friday, February 11th, 2022. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.